And so if you want to find that in your Bibles, whether that's on your app or in one in front of you, or if you brought another one of these printed Bibles with you from your house, your dorm, then that would be great to get started. So we're going to be in chapter 6. We're actually going to take a look at a wider section and context of this section, because I think the parables that Jesus gives us aren't necessarily ones that are so difficult for us to understand the imagery that he's giving us. Uh, but we might want to be able to have a, a broader context to take it in as we do so. So I'm going to start at, uh, at uh, verse 12. And what we see here is that in uh, Luke chapter 6, as we get into verse uh, 12 and on, we have uh, one of the uh, sermons that Jesus has proclaimed. And so uh, we have in verse 12, it says, In these days he went out to a mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And then we get through that uh, list that we're familiar with. So we know that he has a a following of disciples. And yet from those disciples, he uh, chooses twelve as his apostles. And then if we were to jump down to verse 17, it says he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So what we get is we get this progression of where we have these uh, disciples that are following Jesus. He's got 12 of them that are apostles. And from there, he's going to proclaim and preach a message that we're going to get into the detail of. And what we get is that we have this Jesus giving his teaching to his disciples, a disciple being the ones who are learners, who are students. Uh, in the early church history, we, might have, uh, we, we would use the term catechumens, all right? people who want to be gathered around the person whom they are being discipled by. All right? And so as we take a look at that, it's not only a, a New Testament thing, but it's an Old Testament thing. And so we're going to jump into how that connection is what Jesus is laying out. So if we could go to verse 20... Here we see the Beatitudes that we're uh, probably familiar with. But as we take a look at them, I want to take a a look at them in a context of the Old Testament. You see the Old Testament, you can uh, write these uh, verses down if you want to follow up with them later. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26 and 28, it says this. Again, 11, 26 to 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. So blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And so we have this kind of blessing and curses, and we see that that's the layout that Jesus kind of uses in these Beatitudes. Blessed are you who... And then if you were to jump down to verse 24, you see, but woe to you who are, and he has this back and forth. And so there's this calling back to the Old Testament. Again, the disciple and an understanding of of to hear in God's word is to hear and believe and to put into practice. And so with that understanding, we're going to be taking a look at this. It's to listen in the sense that it's to hear it in faith, faith that's created by the word itself faith that shows itself in works, and faith which receives the blessings promised in the Word. If we were to take a look a little further in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we'd hear some of these words, uh, beginning at, so this is Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, 
death, and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not live long in the land and you are going to over to the Jordan to enter and possess. And so we see this back and forth that, that basically Jesus is kind of uh, mimicking in his preaching. That Look, I'm putting before you kind of two ways of being. There's the way of life and the way of death. There's blessings and there's woes. And it's the same thing we would see if we were to take a look at Psalm 1, which is kind of to be a template for how we would take in all of the Psalms. Psalm 1 talks about, blesses one who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, etc., 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 but who right, digs into the Word of God, meditates on it day and night, and then the closing of that psalm talks about the fact that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And there's other texts in Old Testament Scripture that talk about the same thing. There's kind of these two ways that God puts before us, whether it's Proverbs 4, whether it's Jeremiah 21, but on and on and on. So we take a look at these blessings and these woes. It's important for us to understand right, that these blessings, this is God's favor and grace, which rests upon us. That it's the, the joy that comes not from being these things. So it's not that we should pursue, oh man, I've got to figure out how it is that I can be poor, right, so that the kingdom belongs to me, or I need to figure out how I can be hungry so that I can then be satisfied, or I will need to figure out how it is that I can weep or how people can hate me in order to have these things. No, it's saying that this is the way things are, and so joy comes not from being those things, but from a promise of God's kingdom that comes to understand the eschatological, that means the very last things, the meaning of this existence. So the fact that these things exist, and this is a part of the trials of this world, the understanding of what that means in the last day in the context of Christ. And so we have to also remember that in the midst of this sermon, it's not just Jesus preaching to the crowd, but Luke is writing this down. He's writing this down for a particular reason. He's recording it for people in the early church. And so who might they have been thinking about in these words that Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are they? Well, to a first century Christian, they would have been thinking about those saints who had been martyred and gone through great persecution for faith in Christ. The saints that maybe had discipled them in the faith and brought them in to faith. The saints who were right, them around, right there around them, they themselves would be included. Because what we understand when we take a look at Scripture is that these things describe us upon entrance into the body of Christ by faith in baptism. And so we are to see ourselves in these things when we read, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, blessed are you who weep, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you, etc. But ultimately, we are also to see Christ. Christ who was poor for us, having no place to lay his head, right? The scriptures say. Christ who hungered for us as we think about uh, his, uh, his time in the wilderness before he was being tempted by Satan. Satan and he uh, went without food for 40 days. Our Christ who wept, wept upon his entrance into Jerusalem and wept for the destruction that would take place throughout the history of the world, and who also, of course, we see Christ who received hate. In his crucifixion, what led to, of course, the great exchange, our being given life in his name. 
And so as we take a look at this, in baptism, we are incorporated into Christ, and so this is our reality. Even if we may not experience some of the specifics of these realities, this is our reality, and they are both physical things, but they are also supposed to have spiritual uh, connections as well. And so blessed are we in all these things. And I can't help but take a look at verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. We can think to the second book that Luke would write in Acts. In Acts chapter 7, he makes sure to record the account of Stephen, who in the moments right before he would be martyred and put to death for faith in Christ, said, Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute, and they killed those who announced the coming of the righteous one? whom you betrayed and murdered. So all these things are connected with being discipled in Christ. But in the next section, if the first section talks about these Beatitudes, this is, this is who we are. This is our being. Not because of anything in us, but again, because we have been connected into Christ. Then Jesus goes into a whole bunch of doing words. And so we have these imperatives, and I just want to kind of speak them out to you so you can see them. We're not going to spend a lot of time on, you, on them. But he said, look, love your enemies, do good, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Again, in verse 29, uh, offer the other also if one strikes you on the cheek. Give, in verse 30, do not demand. And then in verse 31, do so to them. Those things that you wish others would do to you, do so to them. So we have this list of all these imperatives, but it keeps going. If you get into 35... You see, love your enemies and do, and do good. Lend to them, expecting nothing in return. But in this middle section, verse 35 and 36, we see kind of the, the connecting point that's being made here. It's that it's all connected to an imitating of God. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High God. We can think of Christ who was declared from the heavens in his baptism This is my son in whom I am loved. And in our baptism, we are adopted into Christ as children of God. It says, for he is kind and ungrateful. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So we see in these imperatives that we have this invitation to be imitators of God in this world because we have already been joined to Christ. And this is who we are. And now it's this living out of all of these things. And then we get to these final imperatives in verses 37 through 39, or 37 through 38, which kind of gives us an image of what does it mean to have mercy. And so we get more of these imperatives. Judge not, condemn not, forgive, and give. But this is how mercy looks. So in all this, we get this context of here Jesus is gathering people around him in order to be discipled, called into this life that is given in Christ. Right? Two lives, two ways that are given. There's the way of life and there's the way of death. And here's the way of life, to be anchored and secured in Christ. And this is who you are. This is your being in the Beatitudes. And this is your doing. These are the things you do as people brought in to the life of, of Christ. And then to kind of help make all this come together, then we get these three parables at the end. And the reason this is probably a fitting way for us to kind of begin in taking a look at the parables in this season of Lent is that in these parables we we see what's the goal of of discipleship. That is, what's the goal of being gathered to Christ to sit at his feet and to be strengthened and encouraged his word. And we get this first one. This first one is about uh, enlightenment. 
So we have these two parables, right? Here's the, the parables that he's told. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they both not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So we see in that verse 39, it says, can a man, blind man lead a blind man? There's a lot of times in sections in, in Luke and others about leading the way. In 170, verse 1, verse 76, uh, this is talking about in John the Baptist that he would uh, lay the way for the coming of the, of the Messiah. If we were to go again to, to the other book that, Acts, uh, uh, that Luke writes in Acts chapter 8, this word for lead can a blind man lead a blind man is the same word that uh, the Ethiopian eunuch says. When he's trying to understand Isaiah and Philip suddenly says, well, do you understand what's being said? And he says, how can I unless someone guides me, shows me the way? And so this concept of being enlightened people, right, light coming into our midst and being made known and aware and understanding of what it is that God is doing is doing has been used throughout uh, the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 4, right, it's proclaimed that the Messiah will come to give sight to the blind and that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And in Luke, there's this both uh, physical actuality of this, but there's also the spiritual implications of these sorts of things. And we see that in, in places like Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, we actually have a man physically who is blind who receives sight from Christ. But then we can also remember in that uh, resurrection visit to the men who are walking on the road to Emmaus, right, that he is talking with them and he is revealing to them all of the scriptures and how they proclaim to Christ. And then suddenly it's when he is breaking the bread that they are able to see. They are enlightened. And then he disappears. But in that sense, they are people who have received sight when before they were blind. And so the first goal is for us to be a people who are enlightened. That is, who have the light of Christ revealed to us. And what we'll see here is that this is dependent upon the relationship. Right? When he is fully trained, we'll be like his teacher. Then our enlightenment is dependent upon relationship with our teacher, who is Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. You know, a lot of times we think about uh, this passage of Scripture with regards to uh, the speck and the log, and we automatically go to, right, the sin that might be in work in our lives, and, and that, that can be a possibility of, of something that's being talked about. But here, when we take a look at Luke, it's talking about having this knowledge and understanding of what it is that Christ has done for us, that we'd be enlightened people, and that this is what is actually takes place in baptism. Some of the church fathers talked about baptism in this way. This washing is called enlightenment because those who are experiencing these things have their minds enlightened. And he that is being enlightened is washed with the name of Jesus Christ. So as we take a look at these things, it's to be enlightened, and, and then it has reference with regards to hypocrisy. But there is this desire that for the people of God to be gathered in his word, that there is great humility that we should take, that we would be a people who would constantly be sitting in the midst of where God proclaims his word to us, 
Not expecting that we have come to a full understanding and revelation of what it means to understand all these things. So that we would be humble, but not to the point, of course, of never wanting to share with someone the acts of Christ in case we might be wrong, but that we would be humble in the pursuit of all these things and in what we share as we teach other individuals. And as we talk about hypocrisy here, uh, we're going to get more to it maybe in a little bit, but see, this is the great sting that hypocrisy is, is that it's seeming to speak out of something that we don't actually have understanding to, and so then you're giving incorrect understanding in the midst of these. But we're going to come back to hypocrisy because it fits well with the next section. So in the tree and its fruit, we have in verse 43. I want you to follow along with me there. I'll, I'll read it aloud. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from the thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person out of good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So the first uh, parable talks about how the, the goal of being discipled in Christ is enlightenment. The second one is transformation. But the important role as we take a look at this is that what the parable seems to say is that character precedes action. So often we think about and focus on right the actions and the activities, the fruit. And man, what is the fruit that's being produced? How much fruit am I able to produce? What is it that I am showing and demonstrating? And that completely undermines the point and purpose of how this all carries out. That the character, right, the type of tree that it was, produces the fruit that is to come. And of course, that uh, we would say that it seems that the deeds, though, would reveal the heart. And so again, getting back to hypocrisy, this is why I think hypocrisy is such a stinging uh, occurrence and why it leaves such a bad taste in our mouths, is that hypocrisy, it's these lies and manipulations that cover up what's supposed to be the natural progression, right? The character is there, it produces the fruit. But often in hypocrisy, it's, it's trying to demonstrate fruit when the character doesn't exist. But for the body of Christ, what we see as we take a look in Scripture, right, this is what to, to go to another disciple, to go to the Apostle John, right, he talks about the, the vine and the branches. Remain in me, I remain in you, and you will bear fruit. Right? It's, it's just what comes out. Here, uh, Luke re- references that Jesus talks about it as being the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. I can't help but think of verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right? God who let light shine out of darkness shone into our hearts, and we now have this treasure in jars of clay, so that even though we are afflicted, we are not crushed, etc., etc. Or maybe in uh, Colossians chapter 2, it says uh, that Paul is praying that their hearts would be encouraged, that they would be knit together in love uh, to reach the riches of fullest um, assurance of understanding, knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ, in who are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, as a people of God who are gathered in his word, who are discipled in these things, we have this treasure which is placed in us as we have been claimed, baptized, renewed in Christ. And so there is this transformation that takes place. And so that's kind of the, the point of the, the second parable. And then we get to this third one. Build your house on the rock. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them 
I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation of the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because he had been, it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And so the point of the discipleship is that we would be built upon a firm foundation. And notice the progression in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. Comes, hears, does. Right? Because there is great power in the word of God, the gospel of Christ. That is where the work is done, is in the word of God itself. And so we come, we hear, and it does the work in us and then through us as we do the work that God has given us to do. And so this is kind of the progression of discipleship. There's a lot of things that we could wrestle with with regards to the trials in life that could come and to shake. Of course, in this setting, we can't help but look back at 6, 23 and, 22 and 23 that talks about the affliction that would come, the attacks that would come by those who say, we are going to be aggressively at work against you for you follow Christ and we reject Christ. But it could be a number of things, whether it be our own sinful flesh, the constant attacks of Satan, the catastrophes in this world, the attacks of others, sure, all these things. But Christ is speaking to a calling that we would find our foundation in Him, that we would be anchored in Him in all these things. And as we do so, this is the calling that we have. Why, why is it that we're gathering together? There's probably a lot of other things that we could be busying ourselves with right now at this point in time. There's probably a to-do list sitting back in your dorm room or on your desk. But there is an invitation to say, let me do the work through my word in your life to anchor you in all of these things. And of course, it's hard for us maybe to speak into the lives of others, but Scripture gives us uh, an understanding to say, hey, why don't you uh, be an encouragement to the body of Christ around you? And so often we will look at the troubles and problems that people have in their lives and we say, well, what's going on and how can that be fixed? Christ would say, come and be anchored uh, in my word. And so that's the, the anchoring that we have as we take a look through these various uh, parables. Will you join me in a word of prayer? <coughs> And as we do so, we, we want to think of uh, also Charlie Rodriguez, who works for our university, and his wife. Unfortunately, uh, they have uh, lost their unborn child, Rachel, and so we pray for them in the midst of their, um, the midst of their mourning uh, and uh, other things as well. Uh, pray with me. Almighty God, we give you thanks that in your Son, Jesus Christ, you have anchored us in your word that we would be strengthened and encouraged in our faith. We pray, Lord, that in the season of Lent, we would place ourselves where your word strengthens and invites us to understand the work that you've done for us on the cross. We pray for Charlie and for his wife in the midst of their mourning. We pray that you would anchor them in the peace that comes only in your son and the hope of the resurrection. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.